I do believe in my heart there is a reason why this promise, this story, has uh, refused to die in spite of all the ways men like me have messed it up over the years. With our own frailty and our own mistakes, our own hypocrisy and judgmentalism, the story remains and people continue to flock to hear the story of the empty tomb. Why? I'm going to tell you that without the empty tomb, nothing else in the Bible, in the New Testament at least, matters. Every other claim, every claim Jesus makes rests on the reality of the empty tomb. Without it, we can stay home next Sunday. Without it, let's go to Galveston, man. Next, I'm serious, take me with you. Without the empty tomb, don't even worry. Um, but if the tomb was empty, everything changes. If the tomb was empty and Jesus' body rose from the dead, which I know is an almost impossible concept for our rational minds to consider. But if it's true, and I want you to consider the, the slim chance that it's true, if it's true, everything changes and the stuff you've prioritized, a lot of it doesn't really matter. And the stuff you put on the back burner, if it's true, that stuff matters most. When I look at the Easter story, I look, uh, I, I look not only to what happened with Jesus, but I look at what happened with my favorite character in the New Testament, which if you've been at the story for any length of time, you know it was uh, Peter. I love Peter. Uh, Simon Peter, the apostle, my favorite of the disciples. He's my favorite. Judas, uh, my least favorite. And all the rest of them are like a tie. I don't know. But uh, it's pretty easy after that. But, you know, Peter, I love him. And why do I love him? He's just a guy. He's just a guy you'd want to hang out with. He's a guy you'd want to watch the Final Four with. He's a guy you'd want to go fishing with. And uh, he's, he's just a guy. And he is impulsive, all the things that I am. He's, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's just kind of erratic, unpredictable sometimes. And I just love watching his behavior in the story uh, of Jesus. And uh, what happens with him after the resurrection stands for me as my, uh, I don't know, I don't want to call it proof, but it's one of my favorite testimonies about what Easter is really about. We know that Jesus and Peter met when Jesus was around 30 years old. Peter was in his 20s. Peter was the only disciple in his 20s. All the other disciples were teenagers. G Judas, etc., all teenagers. If you want to know why I know that, you can ask me after the service. Uh, we'll talk about it. But we know all the rest of the disciples were teenagers. Peter in his 20s. Peter was the only disciple that we know of that was married. He had a wife. He lived in his wife's mom's house, which is also endearing about Peter. He lived with his mother-in-law. It's like a sitcom if you really think about it. I, I, I can't believe they haven't written that movie yet, but it's got to be there somewhere. You know, Peter, uh, P Peter was a fisherman. Not a very good one, apparently, because every time he's mentioned in the Gospels as fishing, his nets are empty. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just, he's really terrible at fishing, but that's how he's supposed to be making his living. Jesus, we know, gives Peter his nickname, Peter. His real name was Simon, and I talk about this a lot because it's one of my favorite things in the New Testament. Jesus gave dudes nicknames, which tells you something about the character of Jesus. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as like speaking proper with a British accent, like a boring old, like, skinny white British guy or something, and that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was a construction worker. He was a man's man too. And Jesus and Peter were boys. 
But how they met, it was, it was great. So Peter's fishing all night. He was, they always fished all night. That's when I guess they called the most fish. I don't know. But not Peter. Uh, once again, he's coming in from the shore in Luke chapter 5 after fishing all night. And his nets are empty. No shock there. And he has his boat uh, docked on the shore. Jesus is teaching. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he is teaching uh, to a crowd that has grown so large that it's pressing in on him on the beach. And he's being pressed into the water. You see, they didn't have, like, sound systems back then. So people had to get close to be able to hear what Jesus was saying. And everybody was pressing in on Jesus. And so he's having to go into the water. And so Jesus just hops into a guy's boat. Jesus doesn't know Simon from Adam. That's a Bible joke. He doesn't know Simon. And I just made that up. And uh, he steps into Simon's boat. And if you know fishermen, they're like, you know, pretty protective of their boats. But Simon goes along with it, whatever, you know, it's, it's fine. And uh, he says, uh, could you just take me out maybe 10 feet? Uh, and throw down the anchor so I can talk to these people. So I picture Jesus there. The way I like to picture it is like Jesus sitting on the edge of the boat with his legs maybe dangling and his toes in the water or whatever, teaching the people, uh, preaching a sermon, um, and they're listening, soaking it all in. And when he's done, Jesus says, you know, Peter, I want to go fishing. And Peter's like, I just met this guy, right? And uh, he's a construction worker. What could he know about fishing? And Peter's like, you know, the fish don't really bite during the day. And Jesus is like, well, it doesn't look like they were biting at night either. And, you know, they're like uh, trading barbs, I imagine. And, and uh, he says, just, just take me out there. Then I think you're throwing the net out on the wrong side. I think you need to throw the net out into the deeper water. And then I think you'll, you'll catch some fish. And uh, I imagine, like, Peter rolling his eyes. You know, nobody knows fishing like fishermen know fishing. You know, it's the same is true today. And Peter uh, throws, uh, you know, the, the nets on the other side. And, of course, you know, the story. The nets fill up with fish, so many fish that it almost capsizes the boat and they have to call another boat and all that stuff. And what's great about that story is in Luke 5, Peter, this manly man with beard and muscles and all that stuff, he falls to his knees in front of Jesus and says, Lord, what are you doing here? I'm a sinner. What are you doing spending time with me? I'm just a sinner. And then Jesus tells Peter right there, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how to catch people. You're not very good at catching fish, but I'll show you how to catch people. And so Peter just gets to the shore and he's like, uh, does anybody need a boat? Because I got a new thing I'm doing now. <laughs> this is Peter's personality. You know, he's married. You would think he would go and seek permission from Mrs. Peter or whatever. Uh, but he doesn't, you know. And, and, and this is, I think, where G Jesus gets the nickname for Peter. He calls him the rock. The rock. One of my favorite things Jesus calls, it was Simon. Peter literally means the rock. He also nicknamed other people. Some of you may not know this, but Jesus nicknamed a couple of other disciples. He nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Every time they came in the room, he goes, look, it's the sons of thunder. You know, and, and, and why would you name somebody the sons of thunder? Were they loud? Were they wild? I read one academic journal. I'm totally serious. This was an academic enterprise that, uh, that, that studied the diet of the region where James and John comes from and said they were probably highly flatulent. And that's why Jesus called them... <laughs> The sons of thunder. If that doesn't make you love Jesus, I got nothing else for you. I love it. These are boys hanging out. These are guys. They're friends. They spend every waking minute of every day together for three years. And Jesus gives them names. The sons of thunder and the rock. Why call Peter the rock? I think that was also a little tongue-in-cheek because rocks are steady and consistent. Everything Peter was not. Simon Peter was impulsive and inconsistent. And uh, Jesus calls him the rock. I think it was a little bit like, you know, you ever known a really fat guy that his friends call tiny? <laughs> I think that's what's going on when Jesus calls Peter the rock. Yeah, you're the rock. Okay, rock. You know, that kind of thing. Because Peter's behavior betrays that title. 
For example, when uh, Jesus walks on the water, y'all remember that story? And that's another story that we've kind of hyper-sentimentalized through Vacation Bible School and things like that. And we go, oh, Jesus walked on the water, what a holy moment. I think Jesus was just messing with them. Because the Bible says it was late at night, middle of the night, they're out fishing and they see this ghost on the water and the disciples freak out and they start screaming like kids on Halloween. And, you know, Jesus is out there. What other reason would he have for being (laughs) out there than just to give him a good scare in the middle of the night for no real good reason? And then Peter, though, Peter says, I think I know that guy. Jesus, is that you? Are you messing with us again, Jesus? And Jesus is like, yeah, uh, come to me, Peter. And Peter gets out of the boat, takes a couple of steps, and then the wind blows a little bit, and Peter screams like a child and goes, help me, oh my God, oh my God. And Jesus goes, you can call me Jesus. And he picks him up, and he says, you little faith or whatever, we've made it out to be. These were boys messing with each other. These were friends. They shared life together. And I think when Peter, when Jesus calls Simon the rock, I think it's a, a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek, at least, uh, at least a little bit, a running joke, I think. Because Peter talked a big game. Peter's problem was follow-through. You ever had that, that friend? You ever had that friend that talks a big game and struggle with the follow-through? Some of you are like, I'm married to him. I get it. So it's okay. Uh, <laughs> talk to Gio. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so the, uh, the, the Matthew 26 is where I want to talk today uh, for right now. Uh, anyway, in Matthew 26, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, they're coming for me. My enemies are coming for me. I've been turned in. And when they come for me, all of you are going to betray me tonight. All of you are going to abandon me. And they all sit there except Peter. Peter says, no way. No way. All those other dudes, those losers, he actually says, those fools, they might leave you. I will never leave you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, okay, rock. (laughs) Okay, rock. I'm telling you, by the time the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times and abandoned me. Peter goes, and I quote, even if it kills me, even if it kills me, I will never deny you, Lord. And three hours, four hours later, Peter is breaking this solemn vow that he made to Jesus. Y'all know the story. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter, for some reason, cuts a guy's ear off, and Jesus just reattaches it and whatever. And then they take Jesus away to interrogate him. Peter follows them. To his credit, Peter follows the crowd where they go to question Jesus. This is all in the middle of the night because the Pharisees, they wanted to do it under the cover of night so that the crowds wouldn't hear about it and revolt, right? So it's happening all night long. They take Jesus to this house. Peter goes, and the story says that when they're questioning Jesus inside the house, Peter's like on the porch outside the house warming himself next to a fire, a charcoal fire. He's just warming himself. It's a cold night. But he's close to the house. Peter's close enough to hear the proceedings. He may be close enough to even see Jesus. There weren't like double-pane insulated glass back then, you know, in the houses. There was open windows and some, some cases open doors. Peter can, he knows exactly what's going on. He's within earshot of the proceedings. And a girl says, weren't you one of his people? Weren't you with the Galilean, they said? And he said, uh, no, I... I don't know the guy. A couple minutes pass, and somebody else comes to him and says, I, I think I recognize your accent. You're one of his followers, right? And he goes, no, 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 it's uh, somebody else. I don't, I'm, I don't know the guy. 
And once again, over that charcoal fire, one more person comes and accuses him and says, aren't you with him? Shouldn't you be on trial too? And he says, leave me alone. I don't know the man. I've never met him. I don't know him. And something happens in that moment to send Peter over the edge because the story says that Peter goes running out, sobbing, weeping bitterly. Manly man Peter, with tears and snot in his beard, running out like a child from that place. Here's what I think happened. I think Peter and Jesus locked eyes or something. I think Peter saw that Jesus could hear him denying Jesus, his friend, three times. And then the rooster crowed, and Peter knew. In that moment, Peter knew he was a coward. He knew he was a failure. He knew that he wasn't enough. You ever had that dark moment, that dark realization, where you just suddenly feel like, I'm not doing this right? I'm not who I should be? That's the moment Peter has, and he runs away from Jesus. Not just does he run away, but sometime between Thursday and Sunday, Peter quits. He just quit. He quit being a disciple. Do you know you could even quit? He just turned his badge and said, I'm done. And we know that he did this because when the angel was in the empty tomb and the women come and discover the empty tomb, the angel tells the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. And then they said, and tell Peter too. Tell the disciples and then tell Peter. There is this separation that has happened. Peter has gone back to fishing or he's gone back to his old life. He doesn't think he is fit for discipleship anymore. He has left the cause. If you can imagine how dark that place must have been for Peter. That's what he does. He leaves. But obviously, something brings him back. And that's what interests me today. What is it that brings Peter back into the fold as a disciple again? Something happens. The Bible shed some light on this. You have to look for it. Kind of read between the lines a little bit. But in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus appears, the resurrected Jesus appears to two people on the road to Emmaus, he sends them back to Jerusalem. And those two people go back to Jerusalem and say, hey, hey, Jesus is alive, you guys. Stop being sad. And the disciples are like, yes, we know the Lord has risen. We know this because he has appeared to Simon. He hasn't appeared to us yet, but he appeared to Simon, right? And then, again, Paul confirms this and says, Jesus was raised on the third day and appeared to Cephas, which is the Greek word for Peter, appeared, uh, appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Jesus and Peter had a little meeting. Jesus goes to Peter first. Can you imagine what that meeting was like after Peter did what he did? Can you imagine the intensity of that moment? Why would Jesus go straight to Peter, you know? I mean, I know why many of us would go straight to Peter if somebody did that to us, totally rejected us and sold us out and left us. You go to Peter, get some revenge. Peter, Jesus doesn't go to Peter for that reason. Jesus goes to Peter to have a meeting with him. It was the first ever come to Jesus meeting. It was an official come to Jesus meeting, a literal come to Jesus meeting. And something clicks in Peter during that meeting because after Jesus goes to Peter first, he comes back and he's his disciple again. So what was it in Jesus's heart that made him go to Peter first? I can't help but believe that Jesus missed Peter. Jesus wanted Peter back, even though he had done what he did. Jesus wanted him back, and he goes to Peter first. He missed his friend, I think. 
And then Peter starts hanging out with the disciples again. Here's what happens next. John 21, verse 3. Peter's back with the disciples, but he's not himself. Peter is always with his boys. In John 21, verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. This is code for I want to be alone. Because you didn't go fishing alone back then. It wasn't like you had a motorboat and a rod and reel in those days. You needed some help. Fishing was something you did together. Peter says, I'm going alone. He's in this state of despair and depression because he knows he's a failure. He knows he's messed up and betrayed the one person who loves him most. And he thinks that's a deal breaker for him. But what I love is that the disciples said to Peter, we will go with you. And this is the first example in the scriptures of Christian community at work. This is the church at its best. The church has done a lot of things wrong, you guys. We own that. This is the church at its best because when Christian men love each other, they will not. We refuse to let someone who's living in a moment of darkness go it alone. We refuse to let them stay in their state of depression all alone and isolated. You see, these guys, they had already lost their friend Judas. They loved Judas. Judas had committed suicide after his bout with darkness. They weren't about to let the same thing happen to their friend Peter. We will go with you. Very simple passage, but these four words summarize so much of what we should be about here. We should be saying this to each other in our chapter groups and your teams. We will go with you when you're going through that dark time, you know, when you're going through a postpartum, when you're going through fertility issues, when you're going through a divorce, when you're going through a, a bout with doubt. We will go with you. It's a very simple thing, but it's very profound. This is the church at its best. They go with him and they go fishing. Again, all night they fish. Guess what they caught? <laughs> Nothing. They're just not very good at it. They fished all night and caught nothing again. They're coming in uh, about 6 in the morning as the sun is coming up. They're about 100 yards out from shore. If you can picture this in your minds, there is a man in the distance on the beach building a fire that they can see. And it's strange to see a man on a beach building a fire at 6 in the morning. And uh, then he says to them, he says, hey, boys. If the fish aren't biting today, you should uh, throw that net out in the deeper water. Try the other side. And, of course, something clicks with them. They've heard this before. John says, it is the Lord. And then Peter, Peter does this. Peter makes my day here. Peter says, this is what happens. When Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, he put on some clothes for he was naked, fishing, naked, all night with a bunch of dudes. I guess is what you did. I love Simon Peter, man. Fishing naked. And he's getting ready to jump into the water. So what do you do when you're naked and want to jump in the water? You put your clothes on first, obviously. And so he frantically puts his clothes on, jumps into the water, and swims to Jesus. Why? I guess you don't want to be naked in front of the Lord or something. I don't know. But, like, he just gets clothed, swims in the water, and then gets to Jesus soaking wet in his clothes. When he gets to the shore, he sees the fire Jesus has built. It is a charcoal fire. There are two charcoal fires mentioned in the Bible, the whole Bible. Two. 
The word for the charcoal fire is anthrakia. The first anthrakia mentioned in the Bible is the scene where Peter denies Jesus three times. The second and only other one is here. On the beach, where Jesus builds a fire for Peter. Picture the scene. If Jesus wants to cook breakfast, why not just gather some driftwood from the beach? If you're the son of God, why not just go all Harry Potter and conjure up a fire? Manifest one, you know, not a nothing, poof, whatever. Why, why go to the trouble of carrying all that charcoal with you to the beach in a bag or something and then start a fire with charcoal? Seems obvious. Jesus is recreating a scene for Peter. Jesus is recreating the scene from that night when Peter denied him. Jesus is redeeming Peter. You know, he's evoking some memories here. Science tells us that the one sense of our five senses, the one sense that works closely with, most closely with our memory is the sense of smell. Everyone knows what a charcoal smell, smell what a charcoal fire smells like. Especially you guys. Guys always know what a charcoal fire smells like. It's what we do, right? That's what we used to do. Gas grills, man, not the same. Anyway, I digress. Peter knows that smell. Jesus says to Peter, it's just the two of them. He says, sit down. Let's talk. (laughs) And then this happens. This is from the Gospel of John 21, 15 and 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A familiar passage, but one that sadly we have completely lost out on because of our limitations of our language. The English language has one word for love, love. The Greek language in which the Gospel of John is written has four words for love, the Greek language. First is agape love, which is perfect, infinite, unconditional love, the love of God. Second is storgia love, which is like a love of family, siblings, best friends. The third is eros love, which is a love uh, that leads to uh, coloring, right? You with me? We've got kids in the room. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a little euphemism. Uh, but you probably get it. If you don't, just ask somebody who's chuckling next to you uh, like a teenager. Uh, the fourth one is, uh, is phileo love, where we get the... Philadelphia from, like the city of brotherly love. But really, phileo is the most casual kind of love. It's way more casual than a love of brothers. It's like, uh, it's like the most basic kind of love. It's the kind of love you feel when you're a little tipsy at a bar and you go, I love you, man. You know, like that's phileo, honestly. That's, it's the most, uh, like, unsin- not sincere, but like just basic kind of love. And this is what happens in this story. If we could go back a slide, please. When... Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, Peter, me agapas, 
Do you love me with agape love? Do you love me perfectly? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know that I love you. But he says, Lord, I phileo you. This is to say, Lord, yes, I love you, but I don't love you the way that I should. Obviously, because you heard what I did that night. You saw what I did. I ran like a coward, crying and denying you. And I'm not who I should be. I, I love you, but I don't love you like that. I love you like this. And again, Peter, uh, Jesus says, Peter, Peter, may agapus, do you love me perfectly? Do you love me with agape love, Peter? And Peter goes, Lord, you know that I love you, but I can't tell you that I love you like that. It will be another lie, and I'm tired of lying to you. I love you like this. I phileo you. I love you, but not like that. And Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And we think Peter gets upset then because he's insulted by Jesus' repetition. Like, Jesus doesn't believe me? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Like, I'm trustworthy. Like, that's not what's happening here. That wouldn't make sense. What's happening here is the third time Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Instead of saying, Peter, may agapas, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you, do you love me like you said you do? Are we good? Are we okay here, Peter? And that's when Peter gets upset. Not because of the repetition of the questioning, but he's mad at himself. Because of his own cowardice and his own failure, Jesus has had to acquiesce to his level. Jesus came down to Peter's level because Peter wasn't able to go to Jesus' level. And Peter's upset, and he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, but only this much, obviously. And what does Jesus do? Think about everything Jesus had to forgive Peter of, the ultimate betrayal. Peter wouldn't even go to Jesus' crucifixion, the hardest day in his life, and Peter quits. What would you do if your closest friend just completely left you hanging on the hardest day of your life and said they didn't even know you? What does Jesus do? He forgives him. He welcomes him back as a disciple and not only that, not only does he say, lead my church, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you at, at the gate of heaven, you know, <laughs> like, I'm going to put you over the, the, the department of admissions for heaven. Like, it's a lot of responsibility for a guy who can't even show up when he's supposed to. He received him back, even though he couldn't love him perfectly. For most of us, what Peter did to Jesus would be a deal breaker, we all have deal breakers in our relationships, do we not? We all have things in mind with your friendships or with your marriage or whatever where you're thinking, all right, I love you, but if this happened, we'd be done. Everybody has that. In fact, when I do premarital counseling with couples getting ready to, to get married, I always want to know what their deal breakers are because it matters. I want them to know what each other's deal breakers are before they get into this, right? And it's almost always similar. I mean, I, I'm broad brushing it here, but uh, with women, it's almost always about, you know, uh, family or faithfulness or uh, finances and that kind of stuff. I want to make sure that I, my man's not going to be, you know, lazy and is going to be able to lead our family and uh, is going to be able to, to uh, you know, provide and uh, wants kids. If he, wants, if he decides he doesn't want kids, that could be a deal breaker for me. I had one woman tell me that, uh, you know, there's really not many deal breakers for her as long as her fiance will stop calling his mother mommy. Uh, that, was, uh, that was an eye-opener for him. He, he had never heard that before from her, and uh, I affirmed it. I said, yeah, that's pretty creepy. You should stop calling your mom mommy. He was in his 30s. It was time. So... 
Uh, and for men, the deal breakers almost always have to do with, uh, with the coloring thing. You know, uh, if, uh, if uh, she just really is not into art at all, that's a, that's a problem, uh, deal breaker for him. Or if she's like really into coloring with all of her friends, that also is a problem uh, for most guys. Deal breakers. We've got deal breakers all over our lives, really. Some of you that are single and you're dating, you've got deal breakers, right? You, I see a lot about this online. Like, what are your deal breakers in terms of dating? And I hear, like, things like, you know, I'm not going to do a long-distance relationship. That's a deal breaker. Or uh, for uh, women, uh, the number one deal breaker for women is if a man doesn't have a sense of humor. If he can't make me laugh, it's a deal breaker. I'm done. Or for women also, typically, if a man looks like he hasn't had a shower in a while, uh, that's a deal breaker. I'm not, I'm not going to date a man who doesn't look clean. I'm not going to date a man who's lazy. For, for men, deal breakers uh, tend to be uh, pretty similar. I'm not going to date someone who's lazy. Uh, I'm not going to date someone who just doesn't care about her appearance or someone who's needy. But it's funny how our, our deal breakers, they change, right? So uh, I was talking to a woman in her late 30s the other day who's single and ready to mingle, you know, and uh, she said, when I was 20, man, I had the longest list of deal breakers, and my, how time has changed that. Uh, she said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I wanted a man who, uh, who uh, had perfect you know, teeth and uh, really nice hair, like curly, but not too curly, you know, kind of a thick head of hair. I wanted someone, um, she said, I wanted uh, honest eyes, you know, and uh, preferably blue or green, but as long as they're honest, whatever. I wanted a, a slightly protruding Adam's apple. I found that really attractive. And I wanted uh, abs, but not Abercrombie abs. I wanted just, you know, like uh, like level two abs or whatever. And I, I you know, she was like, and, you know, I, I wanted this or that or whatever, and she's like, now I'm in my late 30s and uh, really want to have a family. And she's like, now, I'll be honest, Eric, uh, if, uh, as, long as, he, as long as he, you know, makes me laugh, uh, I don't care if he's balding and, and overweight. I don't care if his uh, eyes are two different colors. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't care if uh, he drives a, a beer truck. I don't care if he's got a beer belly. I, you know, I don't care uh, about any of that stuff as, as long as he makes me laugh. And I was like, well, you should find the guy you just described because he sounds hilarious. Like, <laughs> just a couple teeth and, like, you know, balding and uh, a couple different colored eyes. Like, that guy would make you laugh just by looking at him. And uh, uh, I'm not sure she appreciated uh, that. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, we all have our, our deal breakers, and sometimes those deal breakers change. But what I need you to know before you go home this Easter, I need you to know that with Jesus, there are no deal breakers. Your relationship history is not a deal breaker for Jesus. Your hopes and dreams and aspirations, you can be lazy. You can never make Jesus laugh, and it's not a deal breaker. You can want kids. You cannot want kids. It might even be a long-distance relationship. It's not a deal-breaker for Jesus. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a deal-breaker. That's what Easter means, is that there's no such thing as a deal-breaker with him. Peter got so upset with Jesus or with himself because he made Jesus come down to his level. What Peter didn't get and what we so often do not get, guys, is that that was Jesus' purpose all along, to come down to our level. That's what it all means. If it's true, you guys, that's what it's all about. 
is that we don't need to try and reach some level of holiness with God in order to be with God. God has bridged the gap and come to our level. And it's his good pleasure, it's his joy to do that, to come to our level. I think we underestimate the reach of God's grace. What this means for you, what it meant for Peter, is that even in your darkest moment, in light of the worst thing you've done, The one thing you look back on, one decision that you made that hurt so many others, that selfish choice you made, those times you prayed to God when you needed him and then abandoned him when you didn't, those times you used God or used someone else, the time you left, all that damage, human casualties in your wake, the time you thought there's no coming back from this, I'm not who I used to be. God could not possibly see me the same way. Telling you, for you it might have been a big deal. For God, it was not a deal breaker. That's what Easter is about. That is why Jesus came. You can uh, you you can uh, wonder, you can doubt, you can question, you can call your mom, mommy. It doesn't matter. Jesus came to show us that there's no deal breakers for us anymore, whether you've been good or bad or somewhere in between. At Easter, we remember Jesus wants your agape, but truly, he will take whatever love your heart can give. Even in your doubt, Jesus will take whatever love you're able to give him today, and that will be a starting point to something new, to something different, and all, it, all you need is one day, one decision, One yes. And my prayer on Easter, all morning I was praying that one person today on Easter Sunday would say yes, would let today be the day that something changed, would let today be the day you look back on 10 years from now and go, that was the day it started. That was the day I became a better dad. That was the day I decided to be a more present wife. That was the day I decided to date more faithfully. That was the day I decided to respect myself a little bit more. That was the day I decided to go to recovery. That was the day I decided to be honest with my parents. That Easter Sunday in 2016, that was the day it all began. Because you said yes to the infinite, unconditional love of Christ that doesn't require the same love in return, but meets you where you are, acquiesces and comes to your level and mine. Says, I love you. Are we good? Can we be friends? If it's been a while, I can tell you, Jesus misses you. God, like a father, misses intimacy with his kids. I pray that you start the journey home today.